Good morning, church. Going to be looking at that passage that was just read for us in a moment. I invite you to just pause for a moment. Let's pause and pray um, for all that's going on in Israel. I feel like that's appropriate to do that um, as we stand uh, with them in prayer and support. Let's pray together. Um, I'll lead us in that. Lord God, as we just sang, you are sovereign over us, and you even use evil for good, for your glory. And that can kind of easily roll off our lips, and yet the truth of that is impactful. It changes our view of everything. It doesn't make us irresponsible. But it does put it in a place where it belongs, and that's with all things, whatever it might be in our lives, what we're seeing right now going on in another part of this world. Your sovereignty is at work. You will carry out your purposes. It's not an excuse for the evil at all. It's horrific. And what should have been a day of celebration and, and joy was instead a day of agony and loss. And so, God, we cry out for your merciful intervention. If we know, God, your word says Israel is your treasured possession. So, God, we cry out on their behalf. We pray, God, that many will turn to you as their true Savior through this. We pray you'd use it to bring people to salvation as only you can do, and we ask that. And we pray that, God, you'd be near all those shocked mourners right now. You'd protect. You'd place that hedge of protection around them. You'd remind them that you are present. And may your will be done as we remember to stand with them in this terrible time. Committed to you for your glory and your grace to be shown. In Jesus' name, amen. You know the scene, I'm sure, of Lucy holding the football for Charlie Brown. And invariably, as Charlie Brown would approach the football to kick it with all his might, Lucy would pick up the ball, and Charlie Brown would fall flat on his back. Well, on one occasion, Charlie Brown had had enough. He refused to kick the football. Come on, Charlie Brown, Lucy begged, kick the ball. No way, Charlie Brown would answer. Every time I go to kick the ball, you remove it, and I fall on my back. Lucy then breaks down in tears. She confesses how badly she feels about all the mean tricks she's placed on him over the years and, and pleads for another chance. And, and, and Charlie Brown, of course, says, I'll give you another chance. He steps back as she places the football on the ground and holds it up with her finger. In typical fashion, Charlie Brown runs with all his might as he's about to kick the ball. What happens? You know what happens. Lucy picks up the ball, and once again, Charlie Brown falls flat on his back. 
Lucy then looks at him and says, recognizing your faults and actually changing your ways are two different things, Charlie Brown. Recognizing your faults and actually changing your ways are two different things. Now, if recognition of our faults has done its work, shouldn't there be something to show for it? How do we know that something is actually at work in our lives? Jonathan White points out that in medical research, we've learned that uncontrolled high blood pressure over time can lead to heart attacks and strokes and and kidney damage and eye and brain issues and, and other things. He says, we see high blood pressure at work in our bodies by seeing the results that it brings. Yet, he goes on, when someone takes blood pressure medicine, we see these negative outcomes decrease usually. He says, we can measure how well the blood pressure medicine is working by checking blood pressure measurements. It becomes obvious whether a particular blood pressure medicine is effective based on the results of the readings. And over time, we can see the blood pressure is working in our bodies by positive outcomes as well. In a similar way, how do we know that the Word of God is at work in our lives? How do we know That there's any benefit at all from reading and studying regularly. How do we know that there's any value in regularly coming to church and hearing it preached, hearing it taught? Well, today we're looking at the process and product or outcome of God's Word at work in our lives. And so if you're not there, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we continue in our study on vital signs from this letter of Paul and his team to the church in Thessalonica. Now last week, we looked at verses 7 through 12 of chapter 2. We saw last time primarily a leadership style that works, that's effective, that's successful. A leader is one who cares, one who's concerned, one whose conduct backs up his words. But there was something there for us all last week. I hope you discovered that. I mean, we too are to be marked by care. We're to be marked by concern. We're to have a conduct that matches who we say we are. But the focus, as I said, primarily last week was on the leaders. Well, here's the flip side of leadership that we looked at last week. Clearly, a leadership style that works depends on responsive followership. So this morning, we'll look at the response of the followers. And as we'll see, their vital signs are good. The Word was doing its work in their lives. This morning, we're answering the question, very simply put, how do we know that the Word of God is at work in our lives? How do we know that the Word of God is at work in our lives? That's the question on the table we're exploring this morning. Well, first of all, my first heading this morning is when we know, we know the Word of God is at work in us when it is accepted. When it is accepted. Look with me at verse 13, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I hope you're following along. 
says, and we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. Now, even though Paul and his team of leaders shared the gospel with them and poured out their lives into them, as we saw last week, it would have felt like a total waste of time if the ones on the receiving end did nothing with it. It says of the church here that they received the word of God. Not only did they receive it, but they accepted it. It's the second word in that verse that expands on and further explains the first word. In the NIV, we have the first word received. Then we have the word accepted. The two words received, accepted are close cousins. But, but it's the second word accepted that explains the positive effect of the word on their lives. And the word accepted uh, really means, literally means welcome or welcoming. That's what the word means, welcoming. For example, when, when someone uh, is wa- warmly welcomed into a home, there's hospitality and attention given to them. The host is focused on the guest. What is it that they need? Right? You likely know someone like that. Perhaps you're like that yourself. Is there anything else that I can get you? Can I, can I refill your drink? Do you, do you need a more comfortable seat? Oh, no, no, take my seat. Right? When you're in a home like that, you feel welcomed. Welcomed. When you welcome the word spoken into your life, it's at home in your life. It can dwell there, can live there, so that it can do its work in you. Now, how did the church in Thessalonica welcome the word? Why did they welcome it? Well, the verse tells us, you accepted it, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God. Church, the word of God is superior to the words of human opinion. I mean, there is a human element to what I get to do week after week. But as I said a few weeks back, that doesn't go far enough. People often ask me, Do you get nervous before you come up to preach? Well, that's a yes and a no. I mean, there's always some sense of jitters to speak publicly, but overall, having doing this for well over 30 years, that isn't the part that causes nervousness inside. Honestly, what has me shaking a bit is the fact that I'm handling the Word of God and I hope to have handled it properly as I give it to you. That's what has me shaking in my boots. It isn't my words that you are to live up to. We aren't called to live up to everything the preacher says. It's not my words that matter in the end. I mean, I prepare, I pray that I properly explain what God's word says, but it's not my words that matter. It is his. It's following what he says that matters church, you need to be looking at his word. This is our life. And the people in Thessalonica showed signs of life because they accepted the word into their lives. And it says at the beginning, Paul and his team, they're thankful for that. I get that. Pastor Dan and I, we get that. 
Anyone who preaches the word of God understands Paul's thankfulness here. Because when the word of God goes out, it is received and it's accepted. It is welcome as it actually is the very word of God. That brings joy and gratitude to me, to your pastor, to the ones preaching it. So I thank you, living hope, for receiving and accepting this as the word of God. When you do that, that brings you into my life. I was just talking to someone this past week. And when someone after the service says to me, you know, it's as if that sermon just spoke to me today. Like a lot of other sermons, they kind of speak to me. Listen, only God can do that. I'm just not that smart. So if it spoke to you personally, chalk it up to that being the word of God, accept it as so, welcome it, and let it do its work of changing you. There was this cartoon, I'm sure you appreciate this, it was of a man following the morning service. He was going out and he was shaking hands with a preacher at the back of the church. And he's looking intently at the pastor as he's shaking his hand. He says, powerful sermons, pastor, week after week. I mean, thoughtful, well-researched. I can always see myself in your sermons, and I want you to knock it off. <laughs> right? You know, you know that feeling. There are times when you might not like what it's saying to you. Knock it off. No. Welcome it. Welcome it. A little girl dressed in her Sunday best was running from the car that was parked by her parents, and she was running from the car to the church as fast as she could, trying not to be late for Sunday school. And as she ran, she prayed, Dear Lord, please don't let me be late. And just as she finished that brief prayer, Lord, don't let me be late, she plunged forward and fell. Her clothes were now dirty. Her beautiful dress had a rip in it. She got up. She brushed herself off and started the rest of the way running to the door. This time she prayed, Dear Lord, please don't let me be late, but don't push me either. <laughs> now, I doubt that it was the hand of God that pushed her. But there are times when we feel that hand of God in our life, don't we? That little push, that little nudge from the Lord. Welcome it, even when it's hard to hear, because you know it's divine. Great preacher Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, I would recommend you either believe God up to the hilt or else not believe it at all. Believe this book of God, every letter of it, or else reject it. There's no logical standing place between the two. Be satisfied with nothing less than a faith that swims in the deeps of, of divine revelation. He says, a faith that paddles about the edge of the water is poor faith at best, and it's not good for much. Wow. Are you welcoming the Word of God as it actually is? The very words of God. For I am absolutely convinced I am absolutely convinced that for any sermon to do its work in your life and in my life, it's to be embraced as it is the word of God and not merely something I might be clever enough to come up with each week. 
And like the illustration at the beginning of the blood pressure medication, for it to have an effect, must be taken. The medication must be ingested for it to work. You must welcome it, the medication, not because you enjoy taking it, but because you know it will work. Well, unlike medication, there can be great delight in taking in God's Word. But are we ingesting the Word of God? Do you have some sort of plan for reading God's Word I mean, let's face it, if reading God's word for you is kind of hit or miss, most likely it's miss. It is for me. And you show me a Christian who's lifeless and powerless, and I'll show you a Christian who's spiritually malnourished. You know, I get a little excited up here sometimes. I know that's a shocker. But my intensity in preaching is largely due to my certainty and conviction that this is the word of God and if welcomed into your life, it will change you. If I didn't believe that, I might as well do something else for a living. This is why we need a steady diet of taking in God's word. It's a starting place for God's word to do its work in your life. It must be accepted. Secondly, when the word of God is at work in us, We can know that. We can see that when it is applied. When it is applied. This really takes the first point one step further. Welcoming it and not applying it sums up what we saw in Lucy's comment to Charlie Brown at the beginning of the message, right? Recognizing your faults and actually changing your ways are two different things. For a sign that there's life in us, that God's word is doing his work, is that it's actually changing us. And that change will be seen by others. Look at me at verse 14. For you brothers became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. Now I want us to notice the very first word there in the NIV and in the original, it's the word for. For. And it connects to the, verse 13, and they're receiving and accepting the message. It is the evidence of the reality of having received and accepted the message as the word of God. Now, when it speaks here of their imitating other churches in Judea, don't picture people in the Thessalonica church traveling to other churches in the area, walking in on their service, finding out what they're doing, taking good notes, then coming back and simply copying that. I mean, that describes really the church, the whole church growth movement of the last 40 years. There's never a shortage of material in our day on how to grow a church. All you do is just go what others are doing, follow what they have done, and you'll increase your attendance. You'll be successful. You'll grow a church. Just do these things. Sell a lot of books. Now, I'm not suggesting at all, hear me on this, I'm not suggesting at all that we can't learn from what other churches are doing well. No, 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 we we ought to. But the point being made here of imitation is not by duplication, but just that the word was at work in the churches in the area, it's at work in their lives as well. And what was worth imitating was not certain techniques, not clever strategies, but the word was welcomed and it was changing them. And in that way, they were imitating what the other churches were doing because they were accepting, welcoming, and it was changing them. 
if others were to imitate living hope, what would we want them to imitate? If others were to imitate your life, what do you want them to imitate? Would they see God's word at work in you? Paul refers to these churches as belonging to God, which were built on Jesus Christ, as God churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. He's saying these churches were set up by God himself for Christ's glory. And what the Thessalonica church had in common with all those churches in Judea was their success amidst adversity, which we're going to be seeing here in a moment. It's obvious, he's saying, that the transforming power of God's work is at work, is, God's word is at work in their lives. It was changing them, which was drawing attention to those who opposed and rejected Christ. Because you see, the more we live out the conviction that we, we have here is the very word of God, and it changes us, others will notice. They have to. Are we applying God's word? Howard Hendricks put it this way, likely I've shared this before, it's worth repeating. You see, the Bible was written not to satisfy your curiosity, but to help you to conform to Christ's image. Not to make you smarter sinner, but to make you like the Savior. Not to fill your head with a collection of biblical facts, but to transform your life. Is it transforming us? Really, is it? Is it, is it doing its work in me, in you. What's evidence of that? I love the story told, likely uh, uh, it's, it's, it's apocryphal, but I still like it just the same, that during World War II, U.S. soldiers, U.S. soldiers marched on the Pacific Island as the Japanese retreated. The natives came there to greet the soldiers and they were carrying their Bibles with them. When one of the locals approached one soldier, the local uh, held out his Bible to the soldier, and the soldier said, oh, no, no, we've outgrown that sort of thing, the Bible. And the native said, I love this, you ought to be glad we haven't outgrown the Bible, because if it weren't for this book, we'd be eating you right now. <laughs> I know, my humor's a little weird there. But my point is, we never outgrow this. Never. It's not just nice stories for kids to learn. You know, just drop them off at Sunday school and go do something else. It has the power to change your life. It has to be applied. It's a scene in Pirates of the Caribbean, which pirates Rigetti and Pintel, they're in a long boat on the open sea. Having just escaped from jail, they're headed for a cannibal island in search of Jack Sparrow's ship, the Black Pearl. Rigetti is sitting in the back of this boat, and he appears to be reading the Bible, which is upside down. <laughs> and so Rigetti says to Pintel, you know, since we're not immortal no more, we've got to take care of our immortal souls. Pintel says, you know you can't read. It's the Bible. Spaghetti counters, you get credit for trying. <laughs> well, actually you don't. 
There's not necessarily a direct correlation between the time spent hearing the word of God, spending time in the word of God, and a person's spiritual growth. It has to be applied. We don't get credit for trying in that sense. But when it's applied, you'll see how powerful it is to change your life. Thirdly, we know the word is at work in us when it's affirmed, not only accepted, not only applied, but when it's affirmed. Now I'm going to pick it up, the middle of verse 14. We're going to get a little hung up here. I'm hoping we run out of time and I don't have to touch on some of these things. No, I'm just kidding. Middle of verse 14. You suffered from your own countrymen the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displeased God and are hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. It goes on. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come or will come upon them at last or upon them fully. Now there's a lot here. And I'm going to comment on some of the more difficult stuff here in these verses in a moment. But I want us to keep, I want to keep us on track to the main thought that's present here at the end of verse 14. I don't want us to miss this. The church and Thessalonica suffered at the hands of those who opposed the gospel. That suffering is the outcome of their obedience to the word that was preached. You see, since they welcomed the words of Paul who spoke for God himself and they applied the message of the gospel to their lives, because of that, they faced persecution. And one of the evidences of their acceptance and application of the word of God was the persecution they endured. The word was at work in them which was affirmed by the suffering they were experiencing. You see, to avoid that opposition, to avoid that persecution, they could simply go along with the culture. If they continued in their worship of the many gods in their day, they continued to go along with their moral practices associated with those false gods, they would not have suffered. If they were kind of both in and of the world, they'd be spared this opposition. But their suffering affirmed that the word was at work in their lives. Now, there are times, and this may be true for you right now in your life, the very fact that life is hard for you and your circumstances are far less than comfortable may just be because you are choosing to stick to what God says rather than take the path of least resistance. Because to embrace what God says and follow it is not really tested in the good times, is it? When life's comfortable, it's, it's going well, to obey is one thing and we must obey. But to not buckle under the pressure, not give in when the going gets tough, is affirmation that God is at work in you. There's no other explanation. Why would we do it? All right, since we still have time, let me just briefly touch on some of the more difficult parts of these verses. Paul points out that it was the Jews who killed Jesus, who killed the prophets, and drove Paul and his team out of Thessalonica. Now listen, he is not being anti-Semitic. He's not. There's no place for that in the Christian church. None. 
Paul was very proud of his Jewish heritage. He speaks of it elsewhere in Scripture. He has a deep love for his people. So much so that in Romans chapter 9, he would be willing to, to be cut off for Christ for their sake. That's how much he longed for their salvation. So to misread Paul and accuse him of, of anti-Semitism, off base. It's not all Jews who are in view here. But those in particular were responsible for the death of Jesus and the death of prophets before Jesus. And Paul includes his own forced exit out of Thessalonica as recorded for us in Acts 17. You can check it out. He, 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 he concludes his own forced exit with those unbelieving Jews who are hostile to Jesus and to the Old Testament prophets to God. And in driving out Paul out of the city, they in effect stopped the spreading of the gospel. Now we know, of course, God in his sovereignty would act in spite of that opposition and he would guarantee the gospel would continue to spread. However, those who continue in their rebellion, we look at end of verse 16 here, they will be subject to the judgment of God. No way around it. The patience of God will come to an end. We could turn to the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. We could turn to the days of Noah. We could turn to the people of Nineveh or the people of God in the Old Testament. They were given one chance after another. But listen, we should never test the patience of God. Ever. We should never take it for granted. God in his mercy puts up with an awful lot. He gives people time to repent. But listen, that time does run out. We then see his wrath poured out. Now we cannot be sure of the specific time of wrath that Paul is re referencing here. Paul speaks of it as it's already come because he's so certain that it will. And you can do your own research on that one. But, but here's, here's his point. God will right every wrong. God will hold evildoers accountable. Not appropriate. We do not need personally to take revenge or personally retaliate or personally take matters in our own hands. I'm not saying you shouldn't defend yourself as a nation. That's not the point. But we shouldn't personally take revenge, personally retaliate, personally take matters in our own hands. For vengeance is mine, says the Lord. We should not wish that on anyone. Even, even what we would say is our most hated enemies. But rather, pray and hope they come to a saving knowledge of the truth of Jesus Christ. And the church in Thessalonica, they could rest assured that their persecutors will not get away with it. They will be brought to judgment. The wrath of God will be upon them. Now listen, I know this is not a subject we like to talk about. This is the power of the gospel we could do without. Nah, I don't want to think of God like that. I want to think of God like this. I share Augustine's words to your church father from way back. Augustine says, if you believe what you like in the gospel and you reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel you believe, but yourself. We're struggling with that right now in evangelicalism. A young boy is in front of his class doing a math problem on the board. And he writes, seven times five equals 75. 
Teacher's astonished. The young boy says to her, you know, it may be wrong, but that's how I feel. Well, that's it in a nutshell right there. Absolute truth is irrelevant. It's how you feel is going strong. Do you accept the word, not as the word of people, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe? That matters. Have you embraced Jesus as your Savior? Are you banking on what Jesus has done for you, for your salvation, for those who have not only received but embraced the gospel? We do not need to fear the wrath of God being poured out upon us because Jesus Christ took the wrath of God, the punishment and penalty for our sins, upon himself. That's the good news. Have you staked your life on that gospel? And if you have, then it's to continue to let that gospel change you. It's that faith in the gospel that changes how we live. Because his word, when accepted and applied, listen, it is powerful. Don't lose confidence in the power of God's word. Millions have seen, and, and, and likely you've seen it, Nick Utz's Pulitzer Prize winning photo, a fan Kim Fook. On June 8th, 1972, a napalm bomb was dropped on her village in Vietnam. Fan Kim Fook, who was just nine years old at the time, The picture is of her running, crying from her hiding place in the village temple in Vietnam. And Ute's picture shows Fuchs' arms outstretched in terror and pain, skin flapping from her legs as she cried, non-qua, non-qua, too hot, too hot. That picture became iconic picture for for the Vietnam War. Well, doctors said Kim would not survive, but rather 14 months, after 14 months in the hospital and 17 surgeries later, she returned to her family. Despite the miraculous recovery, however, Kim was seldom free from pain. She was seldom free from nightmares. She was seldom free from her anger. She said, this anger inside of me was like hatred, high as a mountain. My bitterness was black as old coffee. She goes on, I hated my life. I hated all people who were normal because I was not normal. I wanted to die many times. Doctors helped heal my wounds, but they couldn't heal my heart. While spending time in a library, Kim Fook found a Bible and began reading the New Testament. She said, the more I read, the more I felt confused. I wondered which was true, my religion or the Bible. Kim Fook's brother-in-law had a friend who was a Christian, so she arranged to see him with her list of questions. And so she talked with her list of questions, and the friend then invited Kim Fook to visit his church for a Christmas service. The end of the service was a turning point in Kim Fook's life. She says, I could not wait to trust the Lord. She said, Jesus helped me to learn to forgive my enemies, and I finally had some peace in my heart. Now when I look at my scars or suffer pain, I'm thankful the Lord put his mark on my body to remind me that he's with me all the time. Amazing. 
And if you haven't heard the story or seen the video, I encourage you to do so because forgive her enemies, she did. Kim Fook eventually, the story goes on, the rest of the story. Kim Fook eventually met the American pilot who flew the the plane and dropped a napalm bomb on her village. He met her and asked her forgiveness for what he had done to her and her village, and she forgave him. Wow, could I do that? Yes, that's the power of God's word. It can do that. A church alive in Christ is a church that loves the scriptures and lives by them. Living hope, our life depends on this. How's this word changing you? How's it changing me? Can I point to? Let's pray. God, I know this is tough stuff. In fact, that had to go through me before even giving this out. Would be a reason, normal, humanly speaking, to just go preach on something that is in the Bible. I don't have the freedom to do that. This is what this is our life. So whatever it is that you want to take from this morning from this word, as best as I could explain it. And drive it home to us personally. God, would you do that? Would you do that? And may we not say knock it off. But instead, would we welcome it? And let it change us. For this tremendous power in that. Sharper than any living sword. And we thank you for how active your word is in our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen.